All right. So everybody, uh, I think I got everybody with a handout. Anybody need one yet? Okay. Let's begin with a, a quick word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you bless us with all good things. Grant that we may learn to see everything you give us as good, including all those crosses we bear and the suffering we endure, as good for our salvation and good for your glory and good for the joy that you have in store for us. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. All right. So, I understand that uh, when, I dis- when I described how the schedule was going to pan out for the rest of the term, there was a little confusion about which chapters, which chapters we were going to do. So, hopefully, for today, you read chapters 8 and 9. Okay, thanks for nodding along. I appreciate that. Next week, we'll do two more chapters, 10 and 11, and then the last week will be the, the last three chapters. So, 12, 13, and 14. So, just two more cha- two chapters next week. Ten, chapters 10 and 11. And this is just so that, because, for instance, chapter 9 was, a, was 18 times as long as chapter 8, right? So, we got, we want to, we want to, Divided up a little bit more evenly. All right. Now, there was a lot, and so consequently, there's a lot going on in these chapters. Right off the bat, do you have any questions? Any, uh, anything outstanding you want to talk about? Okay. If not, we'll just dive right in to chapter 8. Now, um, we have to sort of, in order to get into chapter 8, we need to, we need to understand the, remember the context. So, do you remember what, what, uh, what kind of a fellow the, uh, the author met at the end of chapter 7 last week? Uh, what was that? Yeah, that's right. All of these solid people, they're here just for, they're, they're, making, they're making sport of us, right? They're here just sort of for, uh, for their own entertainment. Um, and, and they're not really going to um, the, fulfill, fulfill what they've promised. You get the, uh, he gives the example. C.S. Lewis starts bringing out lots of examples from, um, from classic literature and, and, and sort of ancient mythology. So you know the story of Tantalus? Anybody know this story? He, he, shows, up, he shows up in Homer's Odyssey. Um, Homer is, or, uh, not Homer, Odysseus is, uh, right, Odysseus? Okay. Um, He's the guy, right, in the story. So he, he is at the entrance to the underworld, and there's all these, these ghosts coming out. And he sees, um, among, among, among all the ghosts that he sees, one of them is this fellow named Tantalus, who had, sin, who had committed this grievous sin against the gods and was punished by standing in um, a pool of water with a, a tree above him that had some fruit on it, right? And so, but every, every time he reached up to try and grab the fruit, it was too high, he couldn't reach it. And every time he'd bend down to try and take a drink of water, the water would recede, right? So, it was, so he was tantalized but never, never got to experience the fruit or the water that he was uh, standing in the midst of. And so this is the author's fear. He thought how the gods had punished Tantalus. How, you know, he thought of how uh, this place um, was, was now maybe perhaps not what he thought it was going to be, that, that it was just, just a tease, just to torture these poor ghosts that had come from the town below, Okay. Um, so that's, I answered my second question, shoot, that's how his view of the landscape, well, okay, so that's how his view of the situation has changed, but what about the landscape, what about the geography, what about the features of the landscape, how has that changed now all of a sudden, if he's skeptical and uh, a little bit paranoid, what, what, what is he thinking about now? Right, yeah, yeah, so um, the, the guy in the last chapter had said, what, have you thought about what's going to happen when it rains? Right, and these these raindrops that will pierce through you, slice you up, and and then he's like imagining, well, what about this bug that's flying around? It smacks me in the face. Um, so it, it, all of a sudden, this place is no longer a place of, of of safety and respite, but it's a it's a dangerous place. Okay, um, but we're going to get beyond that. So on page fifty nine, he meets or he sees um, another character, and we have to spend a little time thinking about this. Character pages fifty nine through 50, sixty three. We meet somebody who he describes as first a well dressed woman, but what's what's interesting about how she appears in uh, in the light of this world? On page fifty page fifty nine, instead of instead of being uh, well dressed, her finery appears ghastly in the morning light. Right? 
what, what's the deal with this woman? How would you describe her? What's going on with her? That, that, that lady comes later. Hang on to that. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you that question again. This, before, this is sort of the opposite, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. She's afraid. She's embarrassed um, because they'll see right through her. She's embarrassed to appear before them because they'll see right through her. She's ashamed um, and doesn't want to be seen by, by the bright people. Um, and this, it's interesting because she's sort of the, the embodiment of, of, of how shame can really wear a person down, how, can, how it can keep a person from experiencing grace and mercy, right, and experiencing what the, you know, what the, what the solid people have uh, in mind for her. So notice, uh, i give you a quotation, what the, what the one solid person says to her on page 61. He says, an hour hence and you will not care, a day hence and you will laugh at it. You'll, you'll think that it was silly to, to be ashamed um, don't you remember on earth that there were things too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will drink it the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. Okay? Uh, take a look at, um, let's see, on page three of your handout there. There was an article um, in Christianity Today a couple months ago um, that talked about, talked about shame. And the article was comparing the way that um, we, often, we often think of ter- Christianity and, and the world has often thought of itself in terms of um, economics in the last couple centuries, right? So it's about debt and forgiveness. Uh, well, he says that the, the author of this article says there's an important component uh, in the Bible of, of, uh, that has to do with shame. And we see that played out in our lives. So if you're not thinking about, if you're not thinking about debt and forgiveness, about sin and forgiveness, the other side of it is 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 shame, right? The other side of the coin is shame and humility. Um, but notice what he says here on the top of page three of the handout. Um, this is sort of what's going on in, uh, in, in this scene in the book. He says, the remedy for shame is not becoming famous, right? It's not, it's not um, having a life uh, uh, you know, about which you no longer are ashamed, right? Or having things to be proud of. It's not even being affirmed it's being incorporated into a community with new, different, better standards for honor. It's a community where weakness is not excluded but valued, where honor-seeking and boasting of all kinds are repudiated, where servants are raised up to sit at the table with those they once served, where even the ultimate dishonor of the cross is transformed into glory, the ultimate participation in honor. To use the powerful biblical metaphor, the gospel offers adoption, a new status as sons to use the intentionally gendered high-status word of Romans 8 to both men and women, now members of the family of the firstborn son. And then look at the, the last paragraph. The beauty of the gospel is that it acknowledges guilt and shame, covering both with the shame and guilt-bearing representative son. Right. So Jesus in, didn't despise the shame of the cross. What honor-shame cultures are offering to missionaries, so he's, he's here he's broadening his perspective, our own fame-shame culture may offer as well. A chance in the depth of both our guilt and shame to discover just how completely good that news can be, right? So the, the solid people in this scene see this woman who's, who's ashamed. She's afraid that she's going to be seen through, and, and it's a metaphor. I mean, it's a, it's a great metaphor, right? So um, I just read a study that, uh, about something called... Um, what do you call it when um, you're an imposter? There's another word for it. It starts with a C. Uh, Okay. Um, I can't think of the word. It's, we'll, we'll call it imposter syndrome, okay? Um, there's a, the uh, charlatan syndrome, that's what it's called, right? Char- okay, all right. So um, and it's, this, it's this interesting thing. They, say, they ask people who are very successful um, what they think of themselves, and there is this great prevalence among all these people who are successful that, that there's this fear that they'll be found out to be imposters, Right? that they'll be seen through, they'll be seen to be what they really are, right? Uh, because we all know, we all know that if, if, any, if somebody were to, to look in our heart or to look at our, you know, our supposed successes or our supposed goodness, they'd find out just what we really are, and that would be, that would be a terrible thing. Except, except, of course, you know, in the church, where um, if you try and hide it, if you try and pretend that you have nothing to be ashamed of, then you're not, then you're not receiving the gifts that Jesus has for you, because his gift is 
enduring your shame, taking his shame on himself, right? And that's precisely what uh, the, the bright people here are trying to, trying to say to this, this poor ghost. Um, and the real problem is, of course, that she's mostly concerned about, about herself, right? So the, this old expression from Luther that she's curved in on herself. So she's looking, she's looking only at herself. And what's the remedy? What's, what, what is the final, the final hope that, uh, that the bright people have for, for this woman? She won't, she won't come with, a, with, a, with them. And so what do they do? What's, uh, what's, the, what's their solution? What's their last-ditch effort? Is that the one they send the yeah, they send the unicorns, right? So what's, what's the, later, later when uh, Lewis is talking to George MacDonald, he gives the answer to the question, but what's the, what's the, whole, what's the goal of the unicorns? What are they trying to, to accomplish? Yeah, right. So, so there's, a whole, there's a bunch of things going on. One is scare her so she stops thinking about you know, her shame. So she just runs out into the open and she's exposed and she... And, um, and stops worrying about being seen for so long. But there's also, um, th- there may be something, uh, something mythological going on, too, with, with unicorns, of course. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, um, a poem about why the unicorn didn't make it on the ark. It was because um, Ham, the, Ham, Noah's son, was too lazy to open the door when the unicorn was there. And he was lamenting, C.S. Lewis was lamenting the loss of unicorns, that we don't have unicorns. So he, ha- he, has, he, like, he likes unicorns. Um, but he likes, he likes them because, he, uh, I think, because he, he considers them to be symbolic of, of, um, uh, of, the, of the spirit. Um, so, if, for instance, in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis um, uh, has, has unicorns show up as, as one of the creatures in Narnia. But they're, like, unlike a horse, not something that even a king would ever dare to ride on, right? They have such nobility. Um, and they're so uh, oriented towards the good of, of, the, of, of you know, the, the other creatures that uh, they sort of represent the spirit. And so here, they're, they're frightening the woman, sort of trying to frighten her out of her shame. Um, but, of course, the, the, the goal is not to, not to harm her. Um, uh, one other question. Um, what is the... What, here I ask it, um, um, the second to last question in chapter 8, what's the source of shame? Uh, well, we already answered it. Because the, the, the Spirit, let's see, on page 62, the Spirit says in the first full paragraph, friend, could you, not, could you only for a moment fix your mind on something not yourself, right? So, so you're only, you experience shame when you, when you meditate on yourself, right? Um, but if you, if you meditate on Jesus or you meditate on the needs of others, then you're not, even, you're not even thinking about yourself, and, that's, uh, that's, and your shame disappears. Okay, so chapter 8 was nice and short. Any questions? Any other thoughts there? Mary. Sure. I mean, you didn't deserve to walk on the, the, the earth. You didn't deserve to talk about Jesus Christ. Sure. And you can see, I get your passion about it because for, for me to, say, to say shame, shame somebody, that's... So, so it's, it's like when, when you're with Catholicism, uh, there was a mortal sin and a venial sin. Mm-hmm. The venial was lesser than the mortal. Mm-hmm. It's like a mortal sin. It's like a commandment to me. Thou shalt not bully or shame or make a child feel guilty. Okay, this is, and this is, this, so there's two, there's, two sides, uh, there's two sides of the coin when we're talking about shame, okay? So one is, uh, what's the, so, what, the, the difference is where does the shame come from, right? Who's, who's causing the shame? And um, it's certainly not the place of the church. This is, this is, a, this is a key to, why, to, to you know, why St. John functions the way it does. This is fundamental, right? We're not here to shame anybody. In fact, if we did, if we were, um, we would be we would be working against Jesus because everybody walks through the, everybody who walks through the door has something to be ashamed of. And if our if our job was, you know, um, eliciting that feeling of shame, making you feel ashamed before you feel good about yourself, um, we'd be working contrary to what what Jesus has because it's not about evoking shame, right? Humility is not the same as, as shame. 
Um, being humiliated is not the same thing as being humbled, right? Now, the problem is, of course, that uh, the problem with this woman, of course, is that it's not that it's not that others are shaming her, but she she's ashamed of herself, right? Mm-hmm. And this really gets um, this is the, this is what keeps people from even coming to the doors of of a church, right? Because they're ashamed of themselves. Um, so this is so this is why we work really hard when when folks do come, you know, to, not to, not to shame them, but we know that this reality about the about the world and about people that. Um, Everybody lives with shame, and your greatest your greatest accuser is usually your own conscience, right? Um, and so, you know, you hear this plea this plea uh, that these that the that the bright people have, um, and it's really it's, it's so compelling and it's really tragic. It's so sad, you know, to because because you hear this this uh, this desperation. If you would only just for a moment, you know, look away from your your own shame. Um, then you would you would find out that that it's it's going to get better, right? That you that you have that that being seen through is actually the way to um, receiving receiving the goodness that's in store, right? Um, so it's it you're right. Um, uh, it's not the place of anybody to shame another person, and and it's it is in fact bullying, right? To to make that your goal to evoke shame, and it's a power it's a power move, right? Um, but but spiritually speaking. Um, well, we, we we probably are more concerned about the shame that we that we you know impose upon ourselves or that we that we have um, on our own behalf. So, Tina. I would say my son has an attachment disorder, and he is kind of like this woman. He feels shame all the time. Sure. And mm-hmm. it comes from him. It's not other people. But mm-hmm. we learned he should either to tell us that when we need him to do something or correct him, he says. Sure. And that's kind of what the bright people are doing here. You know, they're saying, in our sense, and you will not care. It's like, we're going to love you no matter what. Right. And that's what this is all about. We, you know, we love you. We love you. You're part of our family. Right. Please don't hit your brother with a ball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, and of course, <laughs> this all, this all goes, this all boils down to one of the, one, one of the other basic problems that we have as people is that we, f- we forget so easily, right? Which is why as parents, you know, you tell your kids over and over and over again that you love them. Especially when you discipline them, or you, or you, um, or you have to do something which might make them feel ashamed, um, and that's precisely—I mean—that is precisely the way God relates to us, um, uh, in, in you know far better than we do with our children, right? So um, it was from in the reading this morning from Romans five, right? While we were still sinners, um, it was—he came to us, right? He didn't—he didn't—he uh, didn't make us remove our shame first. Yeah, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And and it, it's um, it's 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 um, it's all you know. It's all of these basic these basic things that when we look at ourselves, we realize we realize that we um, they're things that we hang on to. You heard it in Pastor Bruzek's sermon last week. So so shame is one of them, right? So something something that happened um, in the past that you that you that sort of haunts you, right? Regret. Um, you know, alternately guilt, right? Um, you heard it in Pastor Bruzek's sermon. I mean, it's this, it's this great thing about, uh, it's, this, it's this painful thing about being f- sort of sh- shaped in th- uh, the cruciform life, that the, the edges are pruned, right? When you're, when you're a branch attached to this vine, you have things that are going to be pruned, and death is finally where, um, where you know, it's all, it's all pruned away. And it's not, it's not painless, but... Um, it, it depends on how you hear it. Either you uh, rejoice because you don't get to take that with you, you don't get to take your shame with you into heaven, or or you're you know you're disappointed because you you want to hang on to your shame. And which which is it going to be, right? Do you want to do you want to hold on to your shame? And in fact, most people, I mean, if you if you pose it that in that way, it's an obvious it's an obvious question. But you see in the in the situation of this woman, right? Something about it, it's and it's and it's because she can't believe she can't believe that. Um, her shame won't follow her. Um, it's going to be painful, but her shame won't follow her. Um, and, and finally, um, she'll have forgotten about it, right? And in fact, as we've seen in the next chapter, there's some really remarkable things that, uh, that we hear in the next chapter about how, you, how um, C.S. Lewis uh, um, thinks we're going to understand suffering and shame um, when we're in heaven, right? We're going to look back on our lives and what are we going to think of it? 
Um, anyway, let's uh, let's keep going. Any other questions? Anything else there? Leah. Right. Yeah. Right, and and there you get. I mean, as all of these things sort of clump together, there you get a, sem a sense, uh, you know, this hint of pride, right? So, <laughs> and that is, uh, I mean, that's something that we we that's somewhere we seldom go, right? So, taking pride in our shame, like enjoy. It's, it's just like being enjoy, you know, taking pride in the fact that you're a victim, right? So I have, this, I have this supreme shame that nobody else can understand. Don't take that away from me, right? Now it's my identity. Now it's, in fact, the thing that is where I, where I, find, um, you know, where I, where I find my hope, is that I know, who, I know who I am because I'm this person who's, who's, who has this shame. Um, this is why, I, I mean, it's often taken for granted that, um, that Christianity is, uh, you know, uh, so, so, you know, sort of a, a religion of morality where you have to do things differently. And it's not true. Um, it's, what is true is that in Christianity you learn what good is. You learn what good things are. But more important than doing things differently is, is viewing yourself differently, understanding yourself differently. And it's not just um, sort of a nudge, a, a, you know, a 15-degree turn to the left, right? It's 180 degrees and upside down, right? So that your identity is is not um, found in anything that you, you've done, whether good or bad, right? Anything you're proud of or ashamed of, um, but that is found in, completely outside of you. Um, that's, what, that's, the, that's the heart of Christianity. Um, everything, else, everything else follows from that. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, the real test, the real, the real proof um, that we all sort of encounter finally with faith is are we going to hang on to these things? You know, and this is, this is, this is why we come back. Because um, our memories are poor, we need to be reminded, and uh, we need to be strengthened. Um, and here I'm, I'm going to start giving my Sunday sermon. So come, on, come, on, come to church on Sunday, and then you'll, then you'll hear it. So, anything else? Yes, Nancy. Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. You know, I, 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 um, in connection with this article that I from Christianity Today. I mean, so the just one last thing about shame. The, on the other side of the coin. Um, and the, sort of the temptation to use shame as a tool, right? Um, this is something that we all need to be cautious of and be aware of, right, and repent of, because it's so easy. It's so easy. Um, uh, there was a story um, about somebody who put, you know, posted a, fi a picture on, on Facebook or had a picture posted on Facebook a couple of years ago making an obscene gesture in an inappropriate place, and this woman... Um, you know, because of the power of social media, which was being wielded uh, by people who were, you know, uh, not looking out for her best interests, she she lost she she lost everything. She lost her job. She lost. She couldn't. She was now this person, you know, who was who was identified again identified by shame, and it was so public, right? Um, that is, it's a it's it's a very tempting thing um, to to use shame to our advantage. Um, and when we're dealing with people, when we're dealing especially with people who sin against us, people who offend us, um, check, check yourself. Think about how you're, th how you're considering the people who sin against you. Um, you'll find, I think, that your first instinct is to, is to at least want, want them to experience some shame, right? Um, and they may or may not, but that's not up to you, and it's not your job to induce it. Um, that's really challenging. It's really challenging to want to honor somebody who has um, offended you. There's, you know, the story of Esther, right? So the, um, how, who are the characters? We got Mordecai and Haman, right? I only, I know it best from the Archbook version. So I'm gonna start, I'm gonna start rhyming here. Um, Haman's the bad guy. He wants to kill all the Jews. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Um, yeah, right. And uh, now, 
the kid, so Haman's got about to be promoted to, um, he, he's got this plot to kill the Jews and he's about to be promoted to, um, to I don't know, some higher position. And um, the king finds out that Mordecai had saved his life earlier. And so he honors Mordecai and Mordecai gets, uh, the, Haman's supposed to go and get, get all the horses. I'm going to honor this man who's done this great thing for me. And it turns out the man is not Haman, but it's Mordecai, right? Um, and it, it is just devastating to Haman. It's, I mean, of course, he's a terrible man, and so we're happy. We're happy that he's devastated by it. But think, but think about, I mean, when, when, your, when your mortal enemy is honored, how difficult that is, how painful that is. But that's, but that's precisely um, what Jesus calls for, um, you know, in, in the New Testament. In, in, a, um, in a world in which we love our enemies, we don't ever, we don't ever shame them. We honor them. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, and it's not something that we... Um, that we can muster up on our own. Um, so, that's why, again, that's why we come back. That's why we return. That's why we pray. Because we, we can't do it on our own. Okay. Let's, let's go to the next chapter. Now here, in the next chapter right away, so this is all about George MacDonald, who was an author in the 1800s. So, uh, so now here's the question. Why is, why is, is C.S. Lewis so happy to meet George MacDonald when he meets him? Page 66, yeah. That's right. That's right. He had not only read a lot of his books, but the books had been formative in his, his conversion, right? Um, so, think, so look at what he says here. Um, he's talking about a couple of the books that, uh, that George MacDonald had written. Um, and he, wanted to t- he just told them how, how slowly and reluctantly he had come to admit that his Christendom had more, this is the bottom of page 66, had more than an accidental connection with it, how hard, how, how hard I had tried not to see that the true name of the quality first met, of the quality first met me in his books is holiness, right? So George MacDonald had described something in his books that had, that had uh, attracted C.S. Lewis, and then finally he discovered, he understood, or he, he named it holiness, um, and then saw the connection to Christianity. And so he credits George MacDonald uh, and his literature with, uh, with, with his conversion, or, or, or at least giving him, giving him the sort of the fodder for thinking about Christianity. Um, so, he's, so he's delighted to meet him. Um, and uh, George MacDonald sort of gives him an understanding of what's going on here. He trusts George MacDonald, so he gives him an understanding of what's going on in this place. So look at this long quotation here on page 69. I think this is, uh, this is, this is some really interesting stuff. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of good content here. I got it, the, the quotation for you on the page here. Note what he says. Not only this valley, but all their earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Not only the twilight in that town, but all their life on earth too, will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this, and I'll take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven, the bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why at the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we've never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. It's a, it's a, so he's, what he's describing is basically, in other terms, what we say about the, the life that we live here in the church, right? Uh, where Jesus comes to meet us. What do we say about the, the, the Eucharist? It's heaven on earth, right? Uh, and this, is, this has been the goal of um, God coming and serving his people all along, is to bring us, to, to return to this state where we are in, in a relationship with God that's un, unencumbered, where there's no, there's no opposition, where we're, we're reconciled with God. And all along he's been working on that. And what we'll find, according to George MacDonald, when we get to heaven is that We've had it all along, and, and that's in fact true. The trouble is, of course, that here on earth we, we, we only see what our eyes see, right? And we, can only, we, we, we can't perceive, we can't perceive um, just how all of this suffering and all of the things we endure um, are heaven and are for, and our glory. Um, but in, in once, you know, uh, once it's all said and done, 
then the past will, will have been nothing but good for us, right? Jesus promises that, ev- that everything works out. And to understand that, to see that, um, I, is going to be the most glorious thing, right? To understand that the things we've suffered in this world were far good um, is, is going to be glorious. Any questions there? Any thoughts? Okay. Take a look at the next, uh, the next quotation. Page uh, 71. Now, the, here, so there's a couple things to know about George MacDonald. I, I gave you in this packet some of George MacDonald's writings um, the last several pages because I thought maybe it'd be interesting for you to um, hear what he sounds like. Um, he's a bit, he, he, in addition to writing, so he wrote poetry and he wrote fantasy literature um, and, uh, and also some nonfiction and he preached for a while um, and has collections of un, unpublished sermons. He got into trouble um, in the Church of England, and not for not for bad reasons, um, but because of because his theology is a little, is is a little bit unsteady, um, and on some important points. So, for instance, um, George MacDonald was really uncomfortable with the idea that um, Jesus died to appease God's wrath. Okay, um, so so it's what we call in uh, uh, what we call theologically the substitutionary atonement that Jesus stood in our place, t- taking the wrath of God on himself. He, he prefers to view salvation as Jesus rescuing us from um, this predicament that we're in, this, this brokenness and sin that we're in, but leaving God's wrath out of it. You heard, you heard it in the reading um, this morning from Romans 5. You can't really leave God's wrath out of it, right? The reason we're in a predicament, the reason we're in trouble as sinners is not, because, is not just because the, the wages of sin is death, but because God is, 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 hates sin, right? It, it's, it's contrary to his holiness. So you, you, in, in Romans 5, let me just read this again. I mean, there's really, no, there's really sort of no arguing with it, and George MacDonald uh, just doesn't quite want to reckon with it. But uh, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So why would we need peace with God unless we were uh, you know, otherwise not at peace? But notice uh, then uh, Paul goes on, since therefore we have been justified by Jesus' blood, we have been saved by him from the wrath of God, right? So this is really important. Um, and we see, we see this all over the place. So if you, if you, ever, wonder, if you ever wonder why, you know, the Old Testament um, is so bloody. So for instance, we uh, uh, just recently read the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, priests. Um, and they, it was this, uh, it's this really tragic situation. They... Uh, God has just given instructions for how to build the tabernacle. This is in Leviticus, end of Exodus in Leviticus. The tabernacle has been built. It's been consecrated. Aaron has been consecrated as priest, and he offers a sacrifice, and God accepts the sacrifice. Um, Aaron's allowed to go into the, in, into the presence of God. He has to burn all this incense so he doesn't see God and die, right? But his sons... Um, Go into the go into the presence of God with, with in, in a way that they're not supposed to do it. Right? They they they, they offer unauthorized fire, is what is what it's called. Um, but the but the the crux of it is that they're consumed. They're consumed by fire. They their unholiness can't stand in the presence of God's holiness. God is is you know the righteousness of God, the justice of God is um, not something. Uh, is not something flexible, right? It's not that God overlooks our sins. Sin and unholiness demand recompense, right? That's, that's what God's righteousness means. Um, and that's the, which makes Jesus' sacrifice all the more glorious because, of course, Jesus um, is perfectly innocent, perfectly holy. And taking on uh, our unholiness and our sin, he suffered the wrath of God uh, himself. So there's a, there are some things about George MacDonald's theology that are questionable, um, but the but the vision that he gives of heaven is really, I think, very helpful. Um, but notice what uh, what he says here, and I want to know what you think about this. This on page seventy one, this quotation: "The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words." Um, this is the words of John Milton: "Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven." There's always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There's always something they prefer to joy, that is, to reality. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and supper than say it was sorry and be friends. Right? So, so George MacDonald is talking about 
how everybody who ends up in hell ultimately wants to be there, right? Um, and, and part of this is, is trying to um, sort of, uh, it, in some ways, it's an apologetic effort to make us feel a little bit better about the fact that, that, that some people end up in hell, right? Of course, it's not something that we would ever wish. Um, but it, it does make us feel a little better if we, if we say, well, they want to be there, right? Um, and that's, that's sort of what, what, uh, what, what George McDonald is getting at here, right? So it's the, it's, the, it's the eternity that they prefer. Now, it's true, of course, that, um, that, that the lost would, 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 can't be in the presence of God and would suffer in the presence of God. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, they can't be in heaven, but it's not as though they... In, they enjoy being in hell, right? That hell is some place, somehow... Uh, right. Right, right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, take a look now at pages 72 to 74. We mean, any other questions here? Any questions? There's a lot to... There's a lot to yeah. Yeah. Right, right. The thing about being a Christian is um, Christian is, is discipleship and, um, and, and is learning. And, we'll, and among the things we learn is all the more just how much we have to learn, right? And that's, I mean, that's, that's true generally speaking as well. But as a Christian, that's what, we've, what we discover. Um, and the, what, it, it makes you rely, it forces you to rely on the promises of Jesus, right? That he promises, he promises you that in spite of the fact that you um, won't give up your shame, or that you that you uh, that, you know that you constantly sin, or that you that you find your identity somewhere other than Him. Um, in spite of that, He promises you um, that He has done every good thing for you. Um, and the so so being a Christian is always returning to that promise, um, because if you ever stop discovering your your shortcomings, if you ever stop um, you know, finding yourself in the situation where you say, "I could never get into heaven because of this or that," um, then you've then you've stopped learning. Then you've stopped you've stopped being formed in faith, um, and that's for, that, that's what Jesus does for us. And, but and and the question is, what do you do when when you're in that situation? When you discover when you discover that you're clinging to your shame, or you discover that you um, that you that you don't want to let go of something, um, that you'd prefer misery to joy, um, what do you do? Right, and the, I mean the word, the, the the biblical word for it is repentance. Right, it's turning turning around, turning back to Jesus, um, and and listening to His words. Right, so His promises are are um, are unbelievable, and it's only by the grace of God that we that we cling to them, right? Because we know our because we learn we learn about ourselves. We know ourselves, um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's why uh, I mean. That's why that's why staying in the church is um, is such an important thing. That's why in, at the beginning of Acts, um, the Christians were defined by gathering together um, and saying prayers and breaking bread, right? Because um, as soon as they were separated from that, as soon as they were away from that, um, it's that you start to you start to fall back. Um, you lose sight of of uh, the promises of Jesus. Um, so, come to church. Um, okay. Take a, take a look at pages 72 to 74. Uh, there's a fellow that George MacDonald describes. His name is Sir Archibald. And what's, uh, what's his deal? Okay. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, and what does he find? So he comes, he comes to heaven, and he, fi- what he, he finds, um, what does he find? What's it like for him? Right, right. Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing left for him to discover. Right. Yeah. Um, and so notice. So he's interested. His whole he spent his whole life in. Um, let's see. On the, the top of page seventy three, proofs and more proofs and then more proofs again were what he wanted. And then on the page top of page seventy four, um, he's put in this category of of those men who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing 
for God himself as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist, right? So he came to heaven and found that it was sort of undeniable that God existed, and then he was, well, well, well what now, right? This is rather boring, right? It, so um, it, it's, a, it's a sort of a caricature of another, another type of person who, uh, who this, is why, this is why, again, Christianity is different from other religions, um, and, and different, and Christianity doesn't understand itself to be um, sort of a different, engaging in any different sort of endeavor than the rest of the world. Okay, so um, it's not as though being a Christian is about proving that God exists. Um, whether you believe in an omnipotent creator God or whether you believe in money or you believe in your health, right, you, you have a God, Okay, so it's not, it's the question is not whether there is somebody, somebody, that, somebody or something that you rely on. Um, and, it, and in fact, you know, the, the, the fact that God is creator of the world, I mean, this comes right at the beginning of Genesis, um, but in some ways, uh, we start with Jesus, right? And, and, and we, can wait, we can wait to talk about creation because we talk about Jesus first. Um, Jesus is how we see God. We don't see God first in the fact that he created the world, but in the fact that he came to the world and became a part of the world. Um, and, so it's, and so proving these, 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 these proofs, these philosophical sort of, uh, you know, considerations of God, it's not, it's not what Christianity is after. Um, Christianity, in fact, is after the very same thing that the rest of the world is after, right? Finding something to trust in, finding some, some uh, finding identity, Right? Finding a reason for existence, find, justifying ourselves. Right? Christianity is ans- answering the very same questions. Now, uh, what Christianity says is that you've got the presuppositions all, all wrong. Right? You can't do it yourself. It has to come from outside of you. Um, but it's not, it's not primarily about, you know, as, as though God had nothing to do but, but exist and then every, everything would be okay. Right? Um, that's, not, that's not the point at all. Okay. So we've got Sir Archibald. We're making good progress here. Um, pages 74 to 75, this was a, bi- a really big question for C.S. Lewis. He says, why don't the solid people ever go down into hell? And, and what's, the, what's the answer that George MacDonald gives him? Why don't they ever go down into hell? Or maybe, how about this, can you think of a, a Bible story that, get, that answers the question? Yeah, right, right. So... Uh, the rich man and Lazarus is a, is a story that Jesus tells. The rich man's in heaven and Lazarus... No, that's not true. Uh, so the rich man's in hell, Lazarus is in heaven. Um, Lazarus had, during his life, been a, a beggar and sat outside the gate of the rich man's house. And, um, in, in, you know, and, and now Lazarus is resting in Abraham's bosom and uh, the rich man says, give me just a drop, a drop of water and um, Abraham says there's this chasm between us that can't be can't be bridged, and the, and the rich man still thinks that he has some, you know, this is sort of how things are, right? He still, he still wants to have his own way, so he says, well, send, uh, send somebody, send Lazarus, as a matter of fact, send Lazarus to tell my bro- warn my brothers about this place. Um, and Abraham says, it wouldn't do any good because they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear them, why would they, they, they wouldn't believe even if somebody came back from the dead, right? Um, and that's, and, and it's the, same, the very same reason here, right? So the, so the ghosts, um, you know, they, they come back this far, but they, they, can't, they, they wouldn't go to hell because, um, uh, let's, he, let's see, he gives it uh, on the top of page 75, the saying would do no good if they made themselves mad to help madmen, right? So the ghosts just can't understand. Um, uh, the, the, the solid people coming down wouldn't do them, wouldn't do them any good. Okay, how's everybody doing? It's hot in here, isn't it? Okay. Nope. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, there's this famous quotation that we get from George MacDonald in The Great Divorce. Um, the, 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 a famous quotation by C.S. Lewis from The Great Divorce that we hear often. Um, everyone, page 75, everyone who wishes it does, um, never fear. So everybody who wishes to come on the bus does, never fear. There are only two, two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done, right? Um, it's kind of a nice, it's kind of a, uh, th- this nice terse way of summarizing what George MacDonald's been saying all along, right? Um, the, the people who are in hell 
um, are, un are unwilling to give up their will, unwilling to give up their, this is th their, their will to God's will. Okay? Page 77, we meet another person. There's two more people we have to meet, okay? We'll get through these two people here. Um, and this, this woman, we just, we just see her for a little while, and she is unhappy. And um, George McDonald makes the, makes the distinction between a grumbler and a grumble. What's the difference? Right, right. A grumbler is just one who engages in grumbling, whereas a grumble is a grumble, right? So now what's interesting or what's helpful about this this di distinction is, is how we understand sin, how we understand these things that we fall into, right? So um, Paul says there's, no longer, there's now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Your sins can't hurt you anymore, right? You're a sinner, but your sins no longer condemn you, okay? Grumbling doesn't condemn you, but it's not good for you because it might turn you into a grumble, right? And w which, okay, right? So your sins are not good for you because they might turn you into someone who, who doesn't, doesn't want God's forgiveness, right? Um, uh, it's like, so Pastor Brzezik, when he's teaching the catechumen, it draws this circle, right? It being in Christ, and it's not up on the board, right? So you're in Christ, and when you're in Christ, um, you're living in all these things that are holy, and outside of the circle, outside of Christ, there are things that are unholy, and what you do when you sin is you go out and you, you touch unholy things, right? Um, and uh, God has you on a this pretty nice bungee cord that snaps you back, right? Hopefully, um, you, through 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 the through the accusations of the law, right? Through your fellow Christians, through hearing about you, you know, you know, the Holy Spirit working on your heart, discovering your sin, and He snaps you back. Um, but but that you know, the, the, Paul Paul is constantly urging uh, perseverance because because there's that someday you might pull so hard that that rope snaps, right? right? Um, now, Jesus promises, just like in the story of the prodigal son, um, that, he'll, that he's always there when you return. Um, uh, but it's not something that, it's, not, it's just like Paul says again in Romans, um, it's not that we, it's not just because our sin doesn't condemn us doesn't mean we go on sinning because it's not good for us, right? It's not good for you. Um, and, and, you and you discover that sometimes by, by, by learning hard lessons, right? Yeah, Barb. Right, and he's working, and what, what's remarkable about it is he's working on you, yeah, even, even when you're sinning, um, uh, oftentimes through the, through the suffering that you experience, right? Um, and, I mean, he's promised, he's promised never to, to leave you or forsake you, right? So it's a matter of, really, in the end, just like George MacDonald says, you know, you, you, fi you finally say to him, uh, you, you, you know, I don't want any of this, and then what's, what's he going to do, right? He's not, um, so, that's, that's, and, that's, and that's why distinguishing between a grumble and a grumbler is helpful. It's a helpful paradigm for Christians in how we understand sin, because the temptation is always, or the risk is always, that we, um, that we hold on to our sins, that we say, uh, we, let, we let Satan play on our sins, and, and he says, you know, you've got this thing that you did, and and it's uh, it took you outside of the outside of the holiness of Jesus, and there's nothing that could ever bring you back, right? And, and he plays on that, but uh, to him you say, of course, my sins. Jesus has taken care of them. I, I, I've got I've got nothing to worry about because Jesus has taken care of them. Um, I'm not a grumble, right? In, in Jesus, I'm not a grumble. I was once a, I was once, but I'm not anymore. Okay. Now, last person, page 83 and following. There's a painter who comes to heaven. This is kind of just a uh, sort of interesting reflection. The painter comes to heaven, and why is he unsatisfied? Yeah, there's nothing to paint, right? So paint. So it's a little bit of philosophy of art here, right? So artists um, get a glimpse of, of something that's worth portraying, um, but in heaven, there's the, the glimpse is the reality, right? Right, right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yep, that's right. It, 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 so, it, so it, you know, it has to do with... Um, uh, so, so, so his, so C.S. Lewis's concern here is that um, that you that in heaven 
acknowledging, notice, noticing that in heaven there's not going to be there's not going to be any more sort of reflection or longing or uh, or um, need to tell about the beautiful things that that there are because everybody's experiencing it. It's there, right? Um, and that's sort of what artists what artists engage in right now. Um, okay, and and alternately he says on page eighty five. Um, uh, every poet and art musician and artist but for grace is drawn away from the love of the thing he tells to the love of telling till down in deep hell they cannot be interested in God at all but only in what they say about him right so um, they, they love they love the, the telling of it rather than the thing itself okay any questions Mary page 71 maybe I have a different copy do I have the same version of the book book as you okay okay page 71 okay oh man I don't know see I just pretended the word wasn't there I just <laughs> wow I did I, I was looking right at it and it was just I know exactly what that means okay <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, if there are no other questions, are there any other questions, comments, anything else strike you about this? There was a lot going on here, a lot to think about. Um, and it's amazing, it's remarkable, I think, how C.S. Lewis can bring out so many different characters, not only um, just for the variety of them, but also with whom we identify, right? So that's part of the, part of the exercise. Um, is you see yourself, you see yourself in, in these characters, um, uh, and then it gives you a chance to think about it, what that means. Um, okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, next two chapters, 10 and 11 next week.